Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted on this week's podcast to introduce Dr. Nick's Nick Coachworth, lots of S's in your name. There's only it's one, a, isn't there? It's a, it's a mouthful, actually. A lot of people, Katie, have uh, had funny permutations of my name, but the, the funniest one was Goatsworth with a G. <laughs> but, yeah, well, my they, family do laugh that. about me stumbling over words, so I'm going to say that again. I'd like to welcome to this week's podcast, An Apple a Week with Dr Katie Allen, Dr Nick Coatsworth, who was the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Australia through probably Australia's most important health crisis ever, of course, which is the COVID pandemic. So Nick was someone who had a massive role as a public commentator on COVID and very relevant, not just as a medical health or medical administrator, but as a you know, highly trained respiratory and infectious diseases physician. So Australia was very lucky to have people like Nick and Dr. or Professor Brendan Murphy um, helping Australia through really its you know, gravest um, problems um, over the last several years. But Nick, you now um, have started a PhD on Australia's response to COVID. So you're bringing your intellect, your fine intellect and incisive curiosity to a really important topic. So of course, we can't we can't ask you what the outcome of that will be because you'll have to do that over the next. Two I do. Or three I actually years. have to do the work, Katie. Yeah. 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 But yeah. if we were to step back in, in your sort of initial um, hypothesis of you know did Australia do well or do it did it do badly as a general as a general viewpoint, I, I think undoubtedly we did well and 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 really incredibly well by international standards. The the thing is that it's often very difficult when you're experiencing something as a community to compare it to what other communities you're experiencing, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Southeast Asia, India, anywhere else in the world. The characteristic of the COVID pandemic or indeed any sort of health crisis like that is that the outcomes and the opinion of the community is highly dependent on the community itself. And what I mean by that is you can often uh, navel gaze and say, okay, you pick apart all the things that we did wrong. You ignore the fact that we had amongst the lowest mortality in the world. We made that crucial decision to shut the borders, which I might add, you know, was a complete 180 flip from what the pandemic policy said. The pandemic policy said, let a virus in and we'll deal with it. So that, that, decision I think was the most significant decision of government yes. in our lifetimes. I agree. And and I do I do think that you know the the estimate of saving tens of thousands of lives, I've heard estimates ranging from from 20 to 50,000, absolutely correct. Yes. So so 2020 was was fantastic. And then of course uh, when we get to the more contentious parts of the pandemic and in particular the vaccine rollout one of the things we can't forget is that we'd managed to successfully control this virus, keep it out, despite hundreds of thousands of returning Australians, 
the quarantine program was never going to be 100% success, but one leak out of 400,000 for New South Wales was, was pretty impressive. And we were able to keep it out until we were sort of through phase 1B of the vaccination campaign. So a lot of the vulnerable Australians and healthcare workers were vaccinated by the time we had our Delta outbreaks, which yeah. was so important. And I think it, a lot of people underestimate just how important it was to get those 70-plus-year-olds vaccinated before we had virus circulating in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you were in Canberra and New South Wales, so I, I actually think New South Wales, particularly their contact tracing, as the second line of defence, did a magnificent job mm. of, of holding back the virus. And you can see that as a case study between Victoria and New South Wales. And I'm a proud Victorian, mm. but I know my constituents in Victoria and Higgins were saying, we're not being contacted. We're first and second degree contacts. We're yes. not being contacted. We know the contact tracing was poor. And Alan, Alan Finkel came along and said, let's have look at it and then went up to New South Wales with the team from Victoria to show them how to do it. So there's very objective evidence that the contact tracing team in New South Wales was doing better mm. than Victoria. But, you know, getting back to the vaccine rollout, there were accusations from people who were trying to politicise the vaccine um, program, which I think is very disappointing, that it was a stroll out. Mm. So what, what's your kind of view about our vaccine rollout and how we were approaching it? So I'm going to take a step back and, and sort of bring into some of the PhD theory here, which is, has been really, really interesting. And you'll find this interesting uh, as someone who's, who's been heavily engaged with politics as, as the member for Higgins. Uh, but during a crisis, politicians tend to uh, lose their sense of what is politically expedient because it's not clear to them. The uncertainty of the crisis sort of uh, dissolves politics in a way, which is very helpful uh, because good decisions get made. And in Australia, that period was definitively the first six months of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. With the National Cabinet as well. With the National Cabinet as well. What happened as the crisis sort of became a slow burn crisis or a prolonged crisis is politicians started to get a, a particular sense of what was politically expedient and, and what would get them votes. And uh, calling the vaccine rollout a stroll out um, was clearly designed to do that. I think in a more sinister level, uh, the political undermining of the AstraZeneca vaccine what was it was an awful thing to happen, to be honest. And I remember very clearly, in fact, I've got a slide on one of my presentations, a picture of the inventor of the AstraZeneca vaccine getting a standing ovation at Wimbledon yes. on the same day that Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly in 2021, March 2021, was having to defend the AstraZeneca vaccine in Australia. Now, that speaks very clearly yeah. to my first point, which is communities will view uh, pandemic and respond to pandemic in vastly different ways. So the final point I just wanted to make there is that, uh, you know, we will be worse off if uh, either federal or state politicians or bureaucrats take a defensive position when uh, responding to what we did well or what we didn't do well. At a federal level, we do need to examine the vaccine rollout and the decisions that were made. I happen to think that it went very well, but that's just my view. Um, at a state level, it can't be swept under the carpet, uh, the, the state of Victoria's contact tracing system and the reason and that contribution that that made to the world's longest lockdown. 
it it was the contribution. Mm. Um, it was the reason why the long lockdown was the longest uh, because the Victorian contact tracers couldn't manage anything beyond a single generation of transmission. Mm. Now, the New South Wales contact tracers were able to manage up to four or five generations of transmission. Mm. And that ended up being their downfall because they, they thought they could manage the outbreak in southwest Sydney at West Hodgson Park. And it was because half of the people at that party waited 24 hours to tell the public health mm. guys that they actually were contacts and then Delta was out of the bag. So, I mean, it's actually yes. interesting when you look at the way states handle, um, you know, based on ideologue and, uh, you know, you could, I could see it in, in, in terms of, you know, in Victoria as well, we can't lock down some people, we're just going to lock down everybody, which is a bit more, uh, you know, it's fair to lock everyone down rather than just try and target people. And in New South Wales, there was some politicisation about the fact that some of the most vulnerable parts of the community being locked down because they were seen as being, you know, that was spreading in that part of the community. So there are pros and cons, aren't there, of, you know, a one-size-fits-all versus a targeted approach. And definitely New South Wales was taking, you know, much more the sort of choice and targeted approach in Victoria was taking much more of a one-size-fits-all. But the one thing about federation I always think is that the, the, the different states can learn from each other, mm. and that's what happens often in the healthcare system. Yep. They look across the border and say, well, that worked. The problem is when the politicians got too involved and politicised it, then people couldn't learn from someone else because it looked like they were you know, following the, yeah. the guidebook of someone that they didn't, they weren't politically aligned with. So that was one thing that was helpful about people like Alan Finkel going around to the different states and trying to gather the information to be able to share mm. across the state. So we did see some of that sharing going on and hopefully for the future with pandemic preparedness, people will you know, drop their weapons and try and learn from each other. Yeah, well, I think I think I think that's exactly right. To do that, um, we have to have the right political environment uh, to to do it. And look, to be to be frank, I hope that now the Victorian state election has been has passed, and it's um, you know crit criticizing the initial Victorian response is less politically um, charged. Uh, that we we come to recognise what is required for public health capacity. Mm. That, that's the issue. It's not a political issue. Mm. It's the same as we say what's required for hospital capacity. But, in fact, it's more important because uh, hospital capacity tends not to be chipped away over years of uh, lulls between crises because it's always put forward as a crisis in the hospital system. The problem with public health is it's a very easy place to start taking money out of, which is exactly what happened in Victoria, not just in Victoria, happened around the other parts of the country and probably New South Wales to a lesser extent. But the consequence uh, during the pandemic was that the second most populous state in Australia had probably the fifth most capable uh, public health contact tracing system. And, and, and that is that was an issue. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me also, I mean, when we talked about the stroll ad and it became politicised and weaponised, you could say, is that I know in Higgins um, I was polling to see what the community acceptance for vaccines were in the first half of 2021 and they were very low surprisingly low this was not an anti-vax movement this was a sense that look we haven't had any deaths in the first five months mm. um, from COVID in Australia there's this sort of sense of well let's see what happens overseas with this vaccine and I think the TGA initially responded very well to that you know concern by saying we're not going to rush this mm. we're going to make sure that we don't give an emergency approval we're going to go take this through our proper TGA processes and one of the few countries for the vaccine that said we're not putting safety second we're not yep. going to you know, go at this like a bull in a china shop. And I think we, we managed to bring the community along about the TGA is going to be responsible, the target is going to be responsible. But then that ended up being weaponised again where, you know, this stroll out that it was all too slow, even though we had 
five different mm. contracts. There was a lot of, um, you know, negotiation, particularly with Pfizer, because they were wanting to keep the vaccine yeah. in Europe because mm. there were deaths in Europe. Uh, they were also charging a lot more than AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca was providing it sort of at cost to the developing world, and we all know we can't yes. just vaccinate the developed world and not the developing world. Yeah. But do you think we, you know, we had difficulties with communication and do you think that, you know, public health communication possibly needs to be left to, you know, the the, the communicators that are seen as bipartisan, not being politicised? And mm. I know you were out in the public eye a lot. I think at one point you were Dr McDreamy or was it <laughs> Dr McSteamy? I think, I think I had both of those on the Department of Health comment page at one point in time, which, um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I obviously didn't show my family or my wife those sort of things, but they, they were, they looked at to. I mean, in all honesty, they were some of the nicer comments. So obviously, uh, we, we were all victims of some quite quite nasty social media trolling, but that, that's perhaps for later later in the podcast. I mean, I think the, the, the question is, and again, it comes back to this point that, um, you know, you can't uh, expect the politicians to divorce themselves from politics for a crisis that lasts two years. Yes. Eventually, it's going to come back in as it happened the Liberal Party was in uh, responsible for the vaccine rollout and the Labor Party was in federal opposition. Were the positions reversed? You, we may have heard the Liberal Party use the term stroll out. I think the important thing to remember is exactly as you said, um, there is a non-political narrative, if you will, to this, which I would called the truth <laughs> and, uh, and and I, I think I can speak to this as the sort of face of the national vaccination campaign. I was intimately involved with it and the truth was that in December of 2020 and January of 2021, as you say, we hadn't had any cases and there was... Well, we had cases. We, we, oh, sorry, we'd had no deaths, that's right. Um, we, or maybe, maybe one or two deaths, but um, in any case, what we didn't have was a wave of COVID sweeping through the community, which, if you ask me, is the most powerful predictor of someone getting vaccinated, is having COVID actually, in actually, the community. It's funny you say that because my hypothesis was that even that wasn't problematic enough. Mm. What was in, what, what seemed to be the, the shift or the pivot for people at Higgins anyway, because that's yep. the experience I had, yep. was that they in order to avoid lockdown, we'll get vaccinated. Yes. So well, so that was the trade-off. We don't like this lockdown. We did it because we had to, but we want to get back to normal. And so we've that's been told, really that is interesting. The, yeah. That is the negotiated position, I believe, the federal government had, which is going to lock you down until we're vaccinated. Yeah. Once we're vaccinated to 80 70 80%, and there were arguments about yeah. what that level was. And, in yeah. fact, you know, that's, again, the politicisation of science because there was modelling going on and some people thought it should be 70%, some yeah. people thought it should be 99%. But there was an agreement, a tacit agreement between the federal government and Australian people that we're going to protect you by lockdowns until we have something else to protect you, which will be the vaccines and mm. there were plural vaccines and, and, can, and it will be at a level that we hope you will accept. And, and yeah. Australian people did. They did accept you know, They were very accepting and yep. we had fantastic vaccine uptake Considering we were behind the eight ball with regards to huge vaccine hesitancy, not anti-vaccine, yeah. but vaccine hesitancy because we were a long way from the centre of in, action. In January of 2021, and that's it's important to revisit that point time and time again, um, the hesitancy was broad within the community at that time. And this, this wasn't from simply... informed, educated, really knowledgeable people. That's right. And this wasn't simply political polling. This was detailed detailed polling by the Department of Health. And so the consequence of that with uh, 
Brendan Murphy and Paul Kelly and then Prime Minister Morrison and Minister Hunt was specifically to say, we're not, and, and John Skerritt from the TGA, we're not going to approve this under an emergency use authorisation. And as it happened, it only took an extra six weeks. But I remember being out there at the time doing press conferences after press conference, using those specific words and, and saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to take our time. And that was to allay the fears of the public. So I do think it was then a terribly bad faith uh, argument by the federal opposition at the time, the Labor Party, to, to say that this was a stroll out when they knew the results of that polling. Yes. That, that, yes. that, that's where the politics, you get a, you find it a little bit distasteful yes. because they were being briefed yes. um, by, as, as it happens. By John Skerritt and TGA. Yeah, they, they, they were being, yeah, they were, they were being briefed. I, I, don't, I don't think, I, I suspect the federal opposition uh, um, didn't ask for enough briefings and they, and, and they should get more um, during, um, during times of national crisis like that. Um, but, but in any case, that, that was um, the truth as, as I saw it. And, and then when we started to vaccinate, um, you saw whether it was to avoid lockdowns or, as I said, in my view, when the danger was there within the community, both Victoria and New South Wales achieved the highest rates per week and per day of vaccination mm. in the entire world. Yes. And, and I think that, again, speaks to the, the strength of the response, the strength of the community engagement, um, you know, Forget about the politics. Two different um, stripes of government in Victoria and New South Wales, but fastest fastest vaccination rates, um, and indeed the strength of the health system in crisis. So, look, I'm 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 a very um, it's not simply optimism. I think I think we did we did well. We should be proud of how well we did. Uh, we shouldn't um, use that to hide anything else, any problems under a bushel. Of course. There'll be a Royal Commission and um, if that's the right vehicle, I think if, you know, hopefully if the, the commissioners are of, the, uh, of a positive mind uh, to, to actually get a, a, a good result for the next pandemic and you don't just have some um, King's Council that wants to be the next Rowena Raw from the Banking Royal Commission, like, you don't, you don't, what I'm saying is you don't want an adversarial environment and Royal Commissions, having given evidence in front of one, can be quite adversarial. Um, this this is about this is about learning from the biggest national crisis in um, in our living memory and and it needs to be framed like that. Yeah, I think the summary is that that we did some things extremely well and there were some things that we need to learn from. That's right. So that Australia can benefit and I think the Australian people, you know, despite all of the politicisation, I think they can actually see sense when it's presented to them. Yes. I actually do have a, a huge amount of faith in the Australian people. And they are, I have more faith as a result yeah, of the pandemic. I think so. I'm I really... do. They're prepared to go through lockdown. They're prepared to do the public health measures. They're prepared. They're a bit hesitant about the vaccine, but then they were prepared to take it on board and to do it uh, in a way that when I speak to colleagues in the UK and the US, they say we cannot believe the level of trust and respect that your community has mm. for the public health system and for the decisions that were made um, yep. and that you had a great outcome as a result. So, yeah. you know, the outcome was, was pretty good. And at the end of the day, we've got the community th to thank for that. We've got frontline healthcare workers. We've got the uh, federal politicians and state politicians themselves, um, Liberal, Labor, it doesn't matter, um, and the people like, um, uh, of course, Professor Brendan Murphy and Paul Kelly and the, and the chief health officers. It, you know, not every decision was perfect, um, and and it'll never be perfect, but I think it was um, it was a remarkable response. The other thing I've realised, and we're sitting here in in 2023 now, is that. 
the entire country has just had a fantastic summer holiday. Yes. It's it, everybody I speak to. It's they have had the most relaxing holiday of their lives, and you know why? Because the whole community realizes that for the most part we've past this um it it, this virus remains a risk just as other respiratory viruses remain a risk to highly immune suppressed people i mean we're we're sitting on the campus of the royal children's hospital in melbourne today where there are lots of at-risk kids who come to this this really important center and they'll they'll continue to be at risk for COVID, and we need to continue to research treatments and so on and so forth but at a whole of community level i think there's a collective sigh of relief in summer of 2023 well, I do remember moving into 2022 summer and I'd been calling for rats um, since June, written opinion pieces, given speeches in Parliament, spoke to the party room, spoke to TGA. Um, and it was that was really held up because people were trying to use PCR for perfection, Delta, mm. which I understand, but I wanted to see rats for the transition. Yeah. And they were held up, then there became a global shortage and Omicron came through January or December, January, and I kind of say Omicron stole our Christmas yes. last time. Yes, yeah. it did. And we didn't have the rats in order to sort of help open up yeah. the community. So anyway, I mean, going forward with, with COVID, I mean, we still have a couple of issues that you seem to be, you know, raising their heads, and that is firstly the, the spectre of long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one I'm hearing a lot of is people are concerned about, you know, the, the effects or vaccine adverse events, mm-hmm. um, and there is amongst a, a part of the community concerns that it's not being open and reported enough. There's yep. some conspiracy sort of emerging about uh, vaccines that I'm hearing from various segments of the community. What are your views, firstly, on, on long COVID and secondly, on vaccine adverse events? Oh, well, my view is that they're both incredibly linked in terms of the psychology behind them. And by that, I'm, I'm not saying either a vaccine adverse event or long COVID is a psychological phenomenon. I'm talking about the way both of them are discussed, particularly at the extremes. So let let me explain that. Um, There are those in the medical community that believe the statistic that one in 10 people who suffer from COVID will have symptoms uh, of long COVID uh, at 12 weeks after infection. There have been some studies presented in journals as august as Nature uh, Reviews of Medicine Um, which are deeply flawed studies, deeply flawed. And I think anyone listening to this will recognise just looking around uh, that one in 10 of their friends and colleagues do not have prolonged symptoms at 12 weeks. So there's a a significant overemphasis amongst some quarters of the medical community about long COVID and how many people are suffering from it. On the other side of what we now know to be the horseshoe effect, um, is uh, where, where, you know, the two extremes of the horseshoe start to come together again, um, is uh, sort of the anti-vaxxers, people who will take any single thing that happens after a vaccine and attribute that to the vaccine itself. And, uh, of course, you know, if you take 10,000 people, a certain number of them in the next six weeks are going to have heart attacks, get multiple sclerosis, have get a million bars syndrome, have a baby. <laughs> you can't attribute the baby yeah. to the vaccine. Um, well, it's perfect. That's a perfect example, Katie, because we know what the causality of, of having a baby <laughs> is. So people are very confident about that. But people's, you know, there are extremes in our community that, and and elected representatives as well. Well, it's I think. the epidemiology, isn't it? Is that they don't understand that when you do adverse events, you have to, yeah. you know, look at them both in the placebo and the control. But nowadays, there's yes. not going to be placebo versus control. There's got, well, placebo versus active. No, say. no, that's right. So, so many people have been vaccinated, and and it's you can't you can't. Get that group of people who haven't been vaccinated to or try, been, try or, or had COVID, 
quite honestly. Or, 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 had, or had COVID. Not had COVID. So, so, so what do I think about long COVID? As an infectious disease and respiratory physician, I saw a lot of uh, prolonged post-viral symptoms in my patients before the pandemic. Um, so if you're a full-time hospital infectious disease physician, I think you'd see probably one person every week or fortnight in your clinic that was described and said, Doc, I had something. Like three, the Yamba. Um, Yamba, Ross, Ross River often. Um, uh, in terms of the virus, Ross River, Epstein-Barr virus, influenza. I was a little bit unwell three months ago and now I can't function anymore. Now, that is a highly debilitating condition that we don't have the um, granularity in our understanding of the immune system to be able to either do a test on that person to say, yes, your immune system is dysregulated and that's why you're feeling like you are. Um, and if we can't test that, then we can't actually determine um, what, uh, what treatments we have. So we're in a very difficult position with prolonged post-viral conditions at the moment. The good news is that in Australia, there are universities and, uh, and academics and scientists who I know who have done the early work and they seem to have demonstrated tests that can tell, they're not commercially ready yet, but can tell if your immune system's dysregulated. So yes, yes, it exists, um, uh, long COVID. No, it doesn't exist in the proportion. And the people who are suggesting that it's going to be a mass disabling event, interestingly, the same people who dissed AstraZeneca, the same people who wanted restrictions to continue and, and schools to be shut for and kids as young as two to be vaccinated. These are all the same folk. Um, I, th I think that there is an extreme of, uh, of, of medicine and medical view within the science that, that, that is ignored uh, a lot of the science. Well, this is the thing about science, yeah. isn't it, is that people often think it's pure, but of course... Uh, it's iterative. It's iterative yeah. and also it is opinion, you know, there are this evidence base, but then there's opinions of those evidence, yeah. that evidence, particularly when you're talking about modelling and particularly in the field of epidemiology, which is where I'm an expert. Yes, yeah, that, well, that's, that's exactly right. So, so a lot of work to do um, to, to clarify both long COVID and post-viral. So the, the best thing about the pandemic, though, is for all those people that suffered from post-viral symptoms, syndromes that were pre-pandemic, now there's a heck of a lot of money going to the research. So I think we'll, we'll get some interesting stuff out of that in, in the coming years. Um, but this virus is now circulating in the community. It is endemic, not pandemic. The only reason people haven't declared an end to the pandemic is probably because it's, it, it's moving through China and, and there's political reasons why the WHO hasn't, hasn't said it, it stopped yet, but I suspect it stopped uh, sometime last year. And it'll become endemic. Well, it is endemic. It is, it is endemic, yeah. 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 Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you, Nick, and I really look forward to your, you know, your results of your PhD and academic Thanks, approach to what is a very important issue for us to learn from for the future, for future COVID pandemics or whatever else. Yes. So good on you and, you know, fantastic for all the work you did through COVID. Thank you. Thank you. From, from Australia for all the work there. Very kind. Very kind. Um, and just, as, just to finish, I often like to ask my um, interviewees, you know, where do they see the future in the next 100 years? Just a throw-out line. I there. love that question. Oh, where do we see? Okay. Um, well, uh, I think the future's, the future's got to be, at least for the health profession, is going to be in space medicine because that's where we're going to be. I mean, the next 100 years, um, my kids hopefully will be around um, to see it. 
and um, and and I think we're gonna we're gonna leave um, this planet in a meaningful way, which means there's going to be a whole heap of health issues to work out when you're sitting in space for many years. Love it. That's so huge thinking. I was on the space inquiry in the science commission in Parliament, and I learned so much about space I had no idea about. It's and a- that Australia actually has a leading role to play. It's yep. not just in space; it's also from space with regards to data. Yeah, so it's so, so fascinating. And I, there's a real cowboy out there. People are doing a, a sort of space grab at the moment. I think if there's anyone listening to this, uh, you know, in, in your teens or your early 20s and you're thinking about uh, where to look uh, with regard to your future, um, just about every industry is going to have a role in, in space exploration. It's not space exploration anymore. It's, um, it's living in space. Absolutely. So. Fantastic. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kate. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple a Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do.